I so appreciate the leadership of our pastor, Jamie Rasmussen, as he is leading us to celebrate. And remember, I'm so glad we're remembering uh, the last 50 years. You know, it reminds me of people who don't. It's like the guy who woke up on third base and thought he hit a triple. You know, you got to remember there's been a whole history of people and you stand upon those shoulders and the hours of ministry of folks who've gone on to be with the Lord. Some of them you can recall when you go into the, 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 the garden of memory there. And to remember and to celebrate, but also know we're only at third base and the Lord tarries. We haven't got home yet. That's not until Jesus Christ returns or we return to him. And so this church has such a wonderful leadership and such a wonderful future. And so I'm so glad this next year is going to be one huge celebration. As you know, I'm president over there at Phoenix Seminary, and I'm always looking for new students, and I'm looking at you right now. So right after this service, I'm going to be out in our booth representing the school. If you'd like to know more about Phoenix Seminary or what's going on, or maybe about taking a class and growing some theological education, then I would love to talk to you. Well, this is the Sunday before Thanksgiving holiday, Thanksgiving holiday. Do you know much of the Thanksgiving holiday, it's, it's celebrated primarily in the United States and, and Canada. A few other countries jump in. In Canada, it's the second Monday of October every year. In the United States, it's the fourth Thursday of, of every year. Now, in, in, in ancient times, ancient times, history times, typically in, in, in Europe, festivals were held before and after harvesting, that is harvest cycles, to give thanks for a good harvest. Uh, even here in the Americas, ancient Indians would do the exact same thing. They would celebrate the end of a harvest. But this particular Thanksgiving holiday that's part of our tradition in the United States is traced back to 1621. Plymouth, which is now modern-day Massachusetts, and you know the, the pilgrims and the hats and the turkey and, and the whole tradition. Although there are those who are argue that there was an earlier beginning of Thanksgiving in the year 1565 in Florida by Spanish explorers. But then again, those in Virginia say that in 1619, the early colonists there celebrated the one-year anniversary of the colony, and that was the first celebration of Thanksgiving in America. Well, as they fight about where this thing began, we do know that it stuck and that this tradition continues and we read that such leaders as Governor Bradford planned a Thanksgiving in 1623 and that celebration was celebrated by a fast. <laughs> oh, we've come a long ways, baby, haven't we? But the reason was because the Plymouth colony didn't have enough food to feed the half of 102 colonists. So the native Indians of that area helped the early pilgrims by giving them seeds to plant and uh, uh, taught them how to fish. Now the practice of holding an annual harvest festival did not really become a regular affair in New England until the late 1660s. And in the era of our, of our founding fathers, each state would decide when they were going to celebrate. So Thanksgiving was done throughout the year at different dates based on the states. But the first year that we had, finally, one date for all the states was 1863 by presidential proclamation. And the president was Abraham Lincoln. Because he was trying to come up with a way to, uh, uh, to, to show some unity between the South and the North, North and the South. 
So he, he declared that on the final Thursday in November, the whole nation would celebrate a day of Thanksgiving. Of course, that worked real well for him. But it wasn't until December 26, 1941, that it was established by Congress and by federal legislation that it would be the fourth Thursday of November, not the final one, but the fourth. And that was by President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed the bill in the law with Congress making Thanksgiving a national holiday on the fourth, not the final Thursday of November. And I read the reason was to extend the time for Christmas shopping. This is America. Now, aren't you glad you came to church this morning? So now it's a law. This Thursday, by federal law, you will give thanks. <laughs> my, my, my question is, may I ask, all right, to whom then? I say the answer is kind of easy. It's always intended that God would be on the receiving end of all this thanksgiving throughout history. He, he's the one that we're giving thanks to. Well, well if that's again, may I ask another why? Why, why to God? I mean, what's, what's this Thanksgiving? Why is this thing so important? You say, well, it's Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says now, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ concerning you. So God commands us to give thanks. All right, may I again ask you, why would God have a need for us to give thanks so he would command it? I mean, is he kind of a little frustrated up there? No one's thanking him. You know, it's like he says, Gabriel, you know, I give all these people everything. They never say thank you for nothing. And you remember, God's the one that hears the seraphim sing holy, holy, holy every morning. So he doesn't have this real need of us for our penny little things. So if it's not for him, then does it have something to do with us? Is it important for my soul to give thanks for what God has given me. I want to look you look at a portion of Solomon's personal journal this morning and, and a verse that I want on my tombstone. It's the last verse of Ecclesiastes 5. He reads, For he will not often consider the years of his life. That is the passing of the years. The fact that he's aging doesn't bother this guy. Why? Because God keeps him occupied, distracted, from his aging, the, the years passing by, with the gladness of his heart. This guy's heart is so full of gladness, he doesn't even care that he's aging or getting old or the days are passing by because he's enjoying the days so much. I, I'm amazed at the number of people my age are running around pretending they're not. And they're trying to do this and that and get that sagging thing to get back up where it used to be. And hey, listen, my stuff sags and what doesn't sag doesn't even work anymore. But who cares? Because if you have a gladdened heart, those aren't the issues. Now, what is this gladdened heart that Solomon's talking about that describes this man? Well, this is what Paul said he learned. Apparently, this is something you are not born with, it's not part of the DNA, it's not a cultural characteristic. It is something you actually have to learn from scratch. Paul, he's writing to the Philippians because they sent this wonderful gift to him when he was in prison. And, and he says, he's thanking them, and he says this in verse 11 of Philippians 4. He said, now not that I speak from want, for I have learned something. I, I've learned something I didn't know before. I learned 
And he actually takes a word that comes out of Stoic philosophy. He says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret. A little chide here of the early mystery religions. We still have them today. You know, if you're really spiritual, you've got to know the secrets. So we have all these different cults with different kinds of secrets. Like, you've got to learn the secret. He kind of chides and says, hey, I broke into their cult. I learned their secret. He says, I've initiated in the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having an abundance and suffering need. For I have learned I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now remember Paul, he used to be Saul, a celebrated rabbi who studied under the most celebrated of rabbis, Gamaliel himself, he would have learned the wisdom literature of the Jews, even those written thousand years before, like for Solomon himself. So the question comes up, well, where had Paul learned this gladdened heart, this this sense of contentment? Because basically all contentment is about is the fact that I need nothing more to enjoy life. I need nothing more to enjoy my life. Do you remember that film, Meet Joe Black? That was, that was a great movie. Anthony Hopkins plays this guy, William Parrish, who is this very, very wealthy and, and successful publisher. And, and, and he's 65. They're about to celebrate his 65th birthday, but apparently he's going to die on his 65th birthday. So a few weeks before death comes to visit him, And death visits him in the farm or the person of Brad Pitt. Now Holly says, death never looked so good. (laughs) Well finally, this is the 65th birthday. They have this big celebration, huge candle. This is the night he knows that death is going to take him away. And, and, And he blows out the candle and then he says these remarks. I'm going to break precedence and tell you my one candle wish. That you could have a life as lucky as mine. Or you could wake up one morning and say, I don't want anything more. I don't want anything more. Where did Paul learn that? You learned it from Solomon. Well, where did Solomon instruct about this? He did it in his personal journal. So if you haven't already, I want you to see the good and beautiful this morning. And my prayers, before you leave this morning, you will see the good and the beautiful. Open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Look at the outward appearance of things. Here in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, the first two verses, Solomon writes, There is an evil. The Hebrew word is ra'ah. It means something that creates misery, something that creates pain and suffering. He says, there's this evil which I've seen under the sun in this mortal life, and it's prevalent among Adam, mankind. There's a man to whom God has given riches and, and wealth and honor, and well, so that his soul, his life, his nephish, lacks nothing at all that he desires. Yet, yet... God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is Havel, vanity, vaporous. This is severe affliction. This is the pain I'm talking about. 
So this evil that he describes refers to the fact that there's this man. And this man is given all his riches and wealth and honor and everything his heart desires. But the guy is miserable. Everybody else enjoys his stuff. He doesn't. And because of this, it says that he has not been empowered to enjoy. Now that wouldn't make any sense at all if we did not have the contrast of another man in the previous chapter of chapter 5. Look at verse 18. Here's another guy's described. It says, here is what I've seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy. This Thursday, it's okay. He says, to enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life, which God has given him for, this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them, to receive his reward, rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God. Then he says, for this, for he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Now why is it that this first guy is empowered to enjoy his stuff and the second guy is not empowered? What does it mean in Empowered. The Hebrew word means to extract enjoyment from the intent of a gift. To extract the enjoyment that is intended in a gift that you receive. You need to understand there's two aspects to every gift. Let's say, for example, I decided I'm taking you out to Ruth Chris for steak. And so we set up a month from now the reservations and I'm paying which doesn't happen very much. So a month from now, we've got this all set up. This reservation's going to be great. Steak at Ruth Chris. Well, but in about a week from now, you get this pain in his tooth. And oh, ah, ah. You go to the dentist. He goes, oh, man, we're talking root canal. Matter of fact, we're going to have to take all those babies out and give you a whole new deal here. Well, the only problem is that your new teeth don't arrive until the day after our reservations. But because you want to spend an evening with me because you can't think a guy could be as quirky as this. So you go ahead and you show up. And so I order the steak. There's the steak. And you smile and you have no choppers. Now I've given you the gift of the steak. But because you do not have the capacity to enjoy, extract enjoyment from the steak, that gift has just become a curse to you. See, there's two aspects to a gift. There's the gift itself. And then there's the capacity to extract enjoyment from the gift itself. And that's what it means here when Solomon says, God gives gifts of good and beautiful, but only God empowers one to be able to have the choppers, to be able to extract the enjoyment of the gift itself. So you look at these two guys why is one guy empowered and the other guy is not? I mean, the first guy's got, God's given him riches and wealth. But the second guy, God's given more stuff. Riches, wealth, honor, everything his heart desires. This guy's got more stuff than the first guy. He ought to be happier than the first guy. But he's not. Now, why does God empower this guy and not this guy? Because it said the first guy 
acknowledge that what he received, he received from the hand of God. In chapter 2, verse 24, he said the same thing. Literally, he had received it from the hand of God and thus acknowledged it as a gift from the hand of God. And when he did so and gave thanks, God empowered him to extract the enjoyment, so much so that he needed no more. His heart was so gladdened. Where the other guy, even though he had more stuff, he basically gave thanks to no one because he just took the first gift and just assumed that he could enjoy it, but for some reason, it's never enough. Have you ever wondered, how could Adam and Eve be tempted for anything? I mean, where did Adam and Eve live? Paradise, hello, lived in Eden. They had everything they needed to eat. They had all kinds of things they could do. As a matter of fact, their life was perfect. As designed by God, God even said it was tov, it was good, it was complete. So if Adam and Eve had everything a human being could ever want or desire, how could they ever be tempted? But of course then the serpent cuts in and deceives them that there's got to be something more. That there's got to be something more, even though they had everything. They were deceived to believe there's got to be something more. And that created the first eye problem. And the eye problem is that they lifted their eyes up and over what God had given them as good and beautiful because there must be something more. And that eye problem created a nose problem. Because when I lift my eyes above what God has given me, the good and beautiful, the way God has packed my bag, what he's put in my bag in my life, my capacities, my spouse, my family, my vocation, my abilities, my opportunities, my chances. As God uniquely packs my bag, as I lift my eyes over my bag, I don't even see it. Because my nose problem, I got my nose stuck in yours. And so I'm looking about, boy, I wish I had her hair. Why? I wish I could sing like him. I wish I could. I could. Oh, if that was in my bag, I would be happy. And so because we've got this nose and eye problem, we're sticking our nose in everybody else's bag because of our eye problem. We're lifting our eyes over our own bags. Therefore, we never acknowledge what God has given us as good and beautiful. And when we don't acknowledge it, God does not empower us to extract enjoyment and that's why our heart is not gladdened. But rather, we tend to be miserable. Look at the last paragraph, verses 7 to 9. He says, All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is not satisfied. For, for what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? Well, what advantage does the poor man have? Well, if the poor man has learned how to acknowledge that what little he has has been given him from the hand of God, he can actually enjoy his stuff and be contented where the wealthy man is still lifting his eyes over his bag and sticking his nose in everybody else's. So therefore his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? And here's the proverb, verse 9. Catch this. For the eyes see... For the eye see is better. What the eye see is better than what the soul desires. What the eye see, when you look at the good and beautiful that God has packed in your bag, and thus you can know it's there and you acknowledge it, God empowers you to enjoy 
And he says, what the eye see is better than what the soul desires because the soul is deceived to think it's, there's got to be something more. There's got to be something more. And so, this man, he is gladdened. You know, there's a reason people just look so miserable. How many times have I said, yeah, I look at Christians, they look like they've been baptized in pickle juice. You want to go, what is wrong with us? And, and those of us who actually are experiencing a gladdened heart, we tend to be very irritating to everybody. I, I've been called the spin doctor. Daryl, you're just putting a positive spin. What, what if it's not a spin? What if I really believe it and see it that way? I'm convinced that if you have, if you are contented, or you have a sense of humor, or southern accent, you lose 10 points on the IQ scale. And I don't understand why that is. But I do have a theory. And the theory is, the wise look foolish by the foolish. Those who live in wisdom look foolish to those who are foolish because the foolish is deceived. Maybe there's something more. This word that Solomon uses twice when he says enjoy the good things, enjoy the good things. You know what the Hebrew word is for enjoy? It's literally see. See. I learned this years ago. It changed my life. I've been married to Holly for almost 42 years, and I adore you as much as I ever have. The reason is because I acknowledge almost daily Holly is a gift from the hand of God to me, and he empowers me to extract enjoyment even though she's British. I have two sons. The Del Husay virus is out today. One son's preaching at Bethany uh, Bible. The other son's preaching at Grace Community Church. And Classy Coke is right here. And the fact is, I so adore and enjoy, enjoy my sons. Because I acknowledge they've been given to me by the hand of God and been packed in my bag. My two sons have given me two daughters. I acknowledge that those two girls have been given to me, packed in my bag, and as I have given thanks for those girls, I so enjoy our two girls. And they've come together, and they've given us five grandchildren. And I am learning <laughs> to enjoy the grandchildren. But I know what I need to do. He realized that each one uniquely is a unique gift from the hand of God. And as I acknowledge that and celebrate that, God will empower me to extract enjoyment from my grandchildren. I love my home. I love my little Mini Cooper. I love this sweater. Is that a great color? <laughs> a gladdened heart. A gladdened heart has everything to do with taking care of the eye problem that creates the nose problem. The eye problem, this Thursday, by law, 
by law. You will have to. Not lift your eyes up and over the good and beautiful packed in your bag, but get your eyes and see. See what is in your bag, in your life, that has been given to you by the hand of God. And one by one, by one, by one, begin to acknowledge each one is given to you from the hand of God. Thank Him for it. He'll empower you to extract such enjoyment from it. You'll get your nose out of everybody else's bag because you'll be so enriched by your own. And your heart will be gladdened. And even though the days are passing by, and some days are good and some days are horrible, but you'll be distracted because God will keep your heart gladdened. This is the mystery of contentment. And it took federal legislation for some of us to get on with it, and so be it. But let me suggest that even this Thursday when you gather, wherever you gather, why don't you take out some bags? Why don't you just drop in some bags, some slips of paper that will remind you the gifts of God in your life. And share your thanksgiving around the table for them. And watch what happens to your soul. Watch what happens to your soul. You'll see the good and beautiful. You'll experience the good and beautiful. And you'll need Nothing more to enjoy your life because what's in your life is so gladdening your heart. Does this make sense? Because if it doesn't, we'll do it one more time tonight at 5 o'clock. <laughs> We're going to end this service by taking an elder's offering. This is a way to show the love, the goodness, the generosity. Hey, folks, we live in Scottsdale. It's still Disneyland. And there's a lot of folks in this community, they don't live here, and they don't have what we have. And so this is an opportunity, I mean, really an opportunity for us to take some of what we have with a heart of thanksgiving and, and give, because every cent goes to physical needs of people in this community in the name of Christ through the church of Scottsdale Bible Church. And so you're part of this fellowship. This is the beginning of our Thanksgiving celebration. You give God, you give as God leads you and walk worthy of the great calling to which you've been called to.